0: Welcome to Regulate Tech, episode number twenty. I think that's that's quite something. Uh, with me, Nicholas Baird Lumblad, and and with me, Richard Allen. Great. So, Richard, this week we thought we would talk a little bit about misinformation and disinformation. Um, there was a big announcement uh, from the European Commission about something they call uh, the strengthening of a code of practice, I think, this week. What, what was that? What, can, can you give us the background? Yeah, So... so um, uh,
1: in fact, you and I were both involved in this. That the, the Europe, or, or rather the institutions of the European Union, adopted a thing called a code of practice on disinformation back in 2018, and I think we were both on the working group, weren't we? That uh, we that were sort of c- came up with that code. Yeah,
0: high-level expert group. A of le- they it. uh, yeah,
1: lovely, <laughs> lovely acronym. And uh, it really, again, it, this is all on the back of what had happened essentially in sort of 2016. Uh, it was very um, political at the time, and so we'll we'll get on to talk about where it's evolved to. But uh, you know, originally, what had happened was that there had been uh, obviously the election of President Trump in the United States, and and uh, concerns around disinformation of all different kinds. We'll we'll dig into that. Um, people had raised concerns about the Brexit referendum. I have a lot less actually sympathy for those, even, even though I'm sympathetic to one side in the referendum, I, I'm not sure that the disinformation piece was quite as valid there as it was in the US. But I, I, these two things obviously created concern in the European institutions, and they had their parliamentary elections coming up in 2019. And so I think really with an eye to to the European parliamentary elections, they created this uh, high-level expert group, and, and that came up with this Uh, essentially a code of practice on disinformation which invited different players to come in and do things to combat disinformation so very much with a focus of how do we how do we stop it impacting on the 2019 European elections and then what's happened is since then uh, COVID in particular has come along and there have been a fresh set of concerns around uh, health-related misinformation and the commission has been reviewing how effective that code of practice was and is now coming up with uh, guidance. In other words, it's uh, sort of setting out the direction under which it expects that code to evolve, and that towards the end of this year, there will be a revised, updated version of it. So this document says, look, these are all the ways in which we think the code needs to be updated in 2021, uh, the one that was originally adopted back in 2018.
0: But but didn't the commission just come out with the Digital Services Act, that's sort of about the same thing? It, it, how, how, the, how do the two connect?
1: It is so, um, it, it, you know, with European legislation, there, there's a, only so much they can do at any particular time, and it's a very, very long process. So, what actually happened back in 2018 was a, a, an understanding that, oh, something needs to be done. And it was the tail end of the cycle, the five-year cycle of all the European legislative process. So there's no time to do any legislation. So, so essentially, they sort of pushed off and said, "Look, we'll come up with something that's not legislative, and we'll do the legislation in the next cycle, which is the 2019 to 2024 one." So yes, we have in this cycle a commitment to legislate this thing called the Digital Services Act. Um, but the Commission is saying correctly, "Look, that's going to take us, you know, two three years." Uh, and therefore, we need to do something in the meantime. But actually, in this document, there's quite a few interesting areas where I think it correctly says, look, you know, if if uh, businesses, it's mainly about businesses in the tech ecosystem, uh, if they want to get ready for the Digital Services Act, one of the ways they can do that is by taking a, a bunch of measures now under this voluntary Self-regulated code of practice because technically th- this has no sort of legal force. you can't be fined for not doing the stuff in the code of practice. But eventually under Digital Services Act, you will be <laughs> you'll be exposed to threats and fines if you don't do things. So they're saying like get on with it now under the code of practice, and then we'll sort of nicely allied into a regulated regime once the Digital Services Act comes into force
0: that's that's it that's an interesting version it's sort of you you see the European Commission dealing with or trying to deal with the fact that it takes a long time to get to European legislation and they're, they're sort of assuming the passing of the DSA they're saying under article 35 you're going to have the opportunity to formulate a code of conduct and you know what this code of practice could be exactly that so you better lean in because if you do we're going to grandfather you into the DSA with this and it'll give you a whole lot more predictability and some protections from fines and other the kinds of liabilities if you actually do so so it's sort of it's self-regulation with the added incentive of a not yet determined legislation that is a few years out but sort of reflecting some sense of of the commission trying to manage the urgency it feels here right yeah
1: and it's again not not unique in this area again my um, my favorite friend political intent is always the thing to watch out <laughs> for look if you're in a company or a business you know, looking at what the politicians intend is really helpful because we're going to end up with legislation. If the intent is there, it's going to translate into legislation. And so I think if there is consistency between what, what they intend to put into legislation and and something that's sort of happening on a non-legislative basis today, in a sense, that's, that, that's helpful <laughs> from a company's point of view. Um, another area where we can look at this is played out in a very similar way is around uh, terrorist content. And so there was a another commission group where I think we were both on again. Yes, we were. We, <laughs> yes, where we would uh, we would meet with the various commissioners who were in charge of um, uh, uh, dealing with counterterrorism. was well, always and, before and, you know, Christmas, I remember. Sometime in yes. December. Yes, it was it was a, a, a terrorist Christmas present. Yes, yeah, so they, they would always sort of um, again corral all the companies into making commitments around. You know uh, reviewing reports about content and taking them down quickly, but with very much with one eye towards saying, Look, at some point, we're going to bring in a directive or a regulation that is going to make you do this. So, you know, better to get hold of it now. And so, again, I, I think it's unusual if that um, political intent really is there to, to go as far as you can on a voluntary basis. Actually, I think that does sort of make sense for both parties. I think where it's different from classic models of self-regulation is in the classic model of self-regulation the suggestion was you end there you know if if you do all of this stuff uh then we won't bring in the regulation i think you're right what's different here is they're saying hey companies do all this stuff in the code of practice and then you're still going to get legislation so it's a it's a different model from your classic self-regulation means no legislation
0: it's sort of a preview of the legislation through self-regulation, a, which is, which is, it's it, a prequel. More of a, it's a prequel. <laughs> it's, it's a little bit like yeah. a, it's more like the Germans, you know, when I spoke to Germans about self-regulation, they always frowned and they, they sort of would wrinkle their noses and they would say, no, no, we talk about co-regulation in Germany. Yes. And, and that's sort of, that's the model here, well, I think.
1: I, I mean, where self is again, really interesting debate for all of us in this circles of where self and co begin and end is really interesting. I think, I think the commission would argue that the, the, the new regime of the Digital Services Act is going to be co-regulation because there'll be these codes of practice that are drawn up uh, actually by external parties. Uh, industry, for example, may be able to draw up its own codes of practice, but those codes of practice will then have a legal hook and and have consequences in the regulation. So I think they would argue that this is pure self-regulation. But again, it's interesting. It's It's sort of self-regulation with a... Uh, the involvement of a political institution. Um, and again, I'm not sure, I think maybe we need more more sort of definitions in order to, to, to be able to talk about pure self-regulation. Industry just gets together and does something itself. This model of, you know, technically it's self-regulation, you can't be punished, but uh, you've got some politician kind of holding a gun to your head and saying, you've got to do this thing. Um, and then you move into classic co-regulation where you still develop the codes but but if you you know you, the codes need to be approved by somebody in government and if you don't get them right you can be punished and then I guess you know the other end have a real classic regulation regulation where it says here's a set of rules this is what you must do and the government kind of owns the code as well and last week we were talking about um the UK's online safety bill the online safety bill is in that latter bucket you know the, the code the thing that tells companies in detail what they've got to do is going to be owned by the regulator, the UK regulator Ofcom. It's not going to be for the companies to make it up themselves.
0: That's right. And so another interesting aspect of this I think was the framing of the entire proposal. The the way the proposal is introduced is by saying that uh, now that we have all suffered through the pandemic and COVID-19, it's clear that there's a ton of misinformation and disinformation out there and so we need to strengthen the code of practice in order to deal with things like this because society depends on having access to accurate information. Now, I thought that was interesting for a couple of different reasons uh there is there is this concept of the infodemic that i want to come back to that i think is is uh, is open to to some debate but b- before we even go there i mean what i thought was really characteristic of the pandemic was that there was not not sort of mis or disinformation it was just a lot of uncertainty people really good medical researchers did not agree on some basic things and still do not agree on some basic things about this virus or the pandemic and that uncertainty Seems to me to be qualitatively different from mis or disinformation. So it's, it's, it's odd, I think, to start the entire argument from saying that COVID 19 has shown us that we need to have more accurate information when what COVID 19 really showed was the power of the internet in exploring different options and generating knowledge under uncertainty, which I think requires that you Don't narrow the discussion, and that you allow for the fringes to exist, so that you can start to explore this uh, with with all of the available resources of a modern democratic society. How how does that rhyme for you? Yeah, we've struggled, and again, you, you and I remember this back to that high level expert
1: group, but struggling with these definitions of misinformation, disinformation, you know, fake news, all these things. What do we actually mean? And I think you're you're absolutely right, Nicholas, that there's there's a lot of things where um, you know reasonable uh, reasonable people can disagree. <laughs> you know, you can because the facts aren't settled, and I think COVID is a classic example where they've changed constantly. And if we just look over you know recent months since the various vaccines have been in circulation, there's been a lot of claims about the safety of vaccines. Some of which have been made by you know heads of state and very senior people, and some of which contradict each other. And so, you know that as an example is is where there is real uncertainty. I I think the thing that perhaps we could all uh, agree is a a very specific issue is around where somebody deliberately uh, and in English, or you you, you use these phrases like sort of dishonestly and sort of with culpability. So you, you know it's wrong. You are deliberately putting out some information that you know to be false in order to. Uh, affect something, uh, and and typically that can be something harmful. So I think there is a world of difference between somebody who knows that a vaccine is safe, invents some data to say that it's unsafe, and promotes that uh, with a goal of undermining a vaccination program for whatever reason. So this might be the kind of thing that a foreign power might do because they want to uh, weaken a third country. That's very different from people with different opinions all working from partial data expressing those views about a vaccine. Um, And so it's really hard to to tease that out sometimes as to what we're actually talking about. But I think it's really important that we do and that we, um, where government is intervening, and this is all about government intervention, albeit by proxy through the companies, um, that government in particular is thinking about those dishonest uh, a promotion of deliberate falsehoods as a uh, and and trying to keep those distinct from genuine public debate in an uncertain area
0: yes I, and, and that line is floating and it needs to be changing quickly which i think is another thing we saw during the pandemic i mean take take the now uh, blatantly false uh, proposition covid-19 is no worse than the uh, regular uh, seasonal flu which you know, a lot of people would go out and say that in the beginning of the pandemic. And a lot of reputable people too, who got articles in medical journals and uh, who were doctors themselves would make this argument. Now, over time, uh, a lot of platforms decided that this idea of comparing COVID-19 to the seasonal flu was beyond the pale. And so, so it was grounds for removal or grounds for putting up one of the warning uh, butter bars or etiquettes, et cetera. And so what I wonder is that that kind of flexibility that seems to be less consonant with the idea of a code of practice like the one that's being put forward here, um, and and I'm I'm just I'm just I think it's really interesting that they use COVID nineteen as the key trigger or the hook to sort of introduce this this strengthened version of the code of practice when what we should have learned. Was we'll done on the massive uncertainty, we need to find ways of of really engaging in knowledge, discovery and exploration.
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, this is just, just to, to your example. We, we've had one in the reverse direction last week. And if people find the news, it, I think we are talk about Facebook is now going to permit speculation that COVID was man-made. <laughs> because, you know, you read the newspaper and you see what the what the security services and intelligence people are saying is that's a realistic possibility that's being investigated, who knows? And so again, to, to yeah. your point, yeah, there's an example. And, and,
0: and PolitiFact, for example, withdrew their their debunking of of the theory that it yeah. could not be man-made. Now, I, I'm I don't think neither you or I are qualified to decide if it's man-made, <laughs> yeah, but, but no, but but, but the point, your, yeah, the point right. is the facts change
1: over time, and um uh, and I think where that causes real challenges, and and actually you'll see this r- as a thread running through the uh, communication is. Um, they talk about you know trying to find key performance indicators and how do you measure? <laughs> how do you measure whether or not you know you're being effective? And that's really really difficult in such a field of uncertainty because it's not. I, I mean, you look at something like child abuse material. Child abuse material you, you can typically define it quite clearly, and the and the success criteria are: did you take it down? Like, <laughs> if there's there's no sort of you know wiggle room. It's like uh, this stuff is bad, always bad. You must take it down. And that's straightforward. You can have a key performance indicator that says, how much of the stuff do you take down, and how quickly. In this space, you know, sometimes leaving something up is a success. Sometimes taking it down is success. It's really hard. There isn't a sort of like a crunchy number you can get hold of. Um, actually, within there, they do talk about uh, measuring citizens' attitudes, where, where, um, the structural indicator. Actually, I think it's perhaps the the more interesting uh, way to approach this. So you don't, don't look at the inputs, but you look at the outcomes. And so, so understanding whether citizens do feel informed, uh, understanding the views of a representative sample of people about the information that they're consuming, I think can, can give you a much stronger idea of whether you've got the balance right than you know looking at numbers of pieces of content taken down or kept up in this world where the data is changing all the time, the views of what you should be doing with content are changing all the time.
0: I, I, I think that in you know, order to sort of unwind that piece, the KPIs, it's important to, to take two or three steps back and ask, well, what is the underlying model that this, this sort of entire piece of, of uh, regulation is based on? And it seems to be that uh, a mature, uh, otherwise informed citizen uh, logs on to the internet and is confronted by uh, a pattern of content or content that makes him or her change her mind in directions that are less socially desirable and in, you know, in directions in which they would not otherwise have changed their mind if they had been uninfluenced by that content. That's, that model, though, works in all kinds of directions, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the meta question they're asking, essentially, is who should edit the internet? In the in the same way that somebody edits, you know, a newspaper or a TV channel, it's kind of saying, well, it's based on a premise. I think that somebody needs to edit the internet. And there are various candidates for that. I actually think that the... Um, European institutions, one of the strengths of the EU, and this isn't because I'm a a slavish Europhile, I'll criticise the EU, but one one of the strengths it has got is in its diversity. And so, you know, between the different EU member states, there are very different attitudes towards government control of information, there's very different types of government, uh, uh, very different cultures represented there. And really from the very beginning of this process, there's quite a lot of scepticism, I think particularly from Uh, people who uh, uh, come from or grew up in in countries in Central and Eastern Europe, real scepticism about the government editing the internet or editing anything. Um, So, so, you know, question one, should the government do it? I actually think uh, the EU is is quite sceptical of the notion of the government doing it. Um, Arguably, you know, other countries like the UK, uh, maybe they're heading a little bit more in that direction. And, you know, with their regulatory proposal of kind of giving the the government or its representatives a bigger role in editing so it's not going to be the government who's it going to be well the default is it's the companies who do it and and actually you'll see through the communication a real uh, sort of sense that companies are doing a bad job of editing the internet and some of the measures deal with that uh, if not the companies, it could be fact-checkers. So do, do we get – and again, fact-checkers are often traditional media organizations, uh, the fact-checking wings of them. So between civil society and traditional media, can we can we empower some new group of people um, to edit the internet rather than the company? So you move this from company to fact-checkers. And then the last group is the users themselves. And, and arguably, that's where the companies are. The companies are saying, look – you know, we, we think that the biggest role in editing the internet is played by users. Um, and then the companies have some kind of a role, uh, but they would very strongly favor that. And I think the European Commission in this communication and the European sort of political institutions generally, I think there is a, a, a skepticism about what would happen if it's left to the companies and the users hence the intervention or or, or
0: what would happen if it's left to the users i think that's where the skepticism is and this is and this is important to tease out because the entire communication rests on the assumption that people can be influenced to think things they otherwise wouldn't have thought that would be bad for them if it was uh, not for the the code of practice or for companies as you say editing the internet and and this is this is based on on very hazy science i mean i mentioned one example to you as we did the pre-research here which i think is interesting The the one footnote to this in the communication goes to a report from the joint research centers of the EU. And and that report If you start to to read through that and really check the sources, it's quite revelatory because what happens is the the sort of one of the first things that the report says is several recent studies have established causality in this manner, including for the role of social media triggering ethnic hate crimes and the role of misinformation in voting for populist parties. And they have references when they says triggering ethnic hate crimes, two references there, and one reference when it comes to voting for populist parties. Now, if you look up those references they do not say what the report claims they say. In fact, the last reference says explicitly that our results indicate that misinformation had negligible or non-significant effect on populist votes. So so it's like all of this is built on really shaky science, on the idea that users have to be guided or they will be forced into changing their minds in ways that they do not want. I, I think that... That is, I mean, I'm not saying that's wrong, but the science yeah. seems not to be there. Not even the science that the commission refers to. But that's right. We we need more, and I should uh, uh, as well at this stage. Um uh share that
1: i am on the executive of a thing called the european digital media observatory which is referenced a few times in the report we, uh, and I, I should uh stress unpaid i i take part in this on a voluntary basis um because i think it's useful uh um so i don't have a commercial interest in this but i am i am interested in you know how how um Europe should tackle this, and I actually think the name of that organisation is quite helpful. It's an observatory, and the work I'm doing there is very much focused on how can we, uh, you know, help academic the academic community in Europe looking at these things access the kind of data they need from platforms in order to be able to draw conclusions precisely on the on the points you've just raised, Nicholas. That yes, we don't know. We we don't. uh, There's a real you know cause and effect question here the simplest terms crudely sort of understood you know when somebody is circulating or consuming misinformation on whatever uh, political vaccine you know is that a form of expression of a view that they already hold or is that media consumption um, helping them to form a view and we just don't know that and and there are academics studying it um, uh, people like the Reuters Institute we've talked about before. I think we've got people sort of looking at this. So there's networks across Europe looking at it. Um, so we need that research to be done. And I think we have to be cautious about intervening too far until we've done enough observation to understand what's going on. Um, and and- – yeah
0: yeah no and i I think that's really true, and I think it's it's true in in many ways because not not because this is an unimportant problem and not because I think that the commission is coming from a bad place. I think all of this is is done with the best of intentions, but unless we sort of unpick that basic model of what it is that's going on here we we're going to address the wrong problem problem like the 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 other study that they cite that says that uh, social media triggers ethnic hate crimes, uh, if you look that study up, they've been looking at Russian hate crimes. And they find, Mm. yes, a higher penetration of social media, they write, led to more ethnic hate crimes, but only in cities with a high pre-existing level of nationalist sentiment. So there's something here that sort of just sort of mm, it's a little bit it, we we are legislating on on sort of the cusp of knowledge and we're not quite sure of what the models really are and I think when we do that with something that is a fundamental value a fundamental democratic value like free expression we we do expose ourselves to some risk don't we? we we do and again it's interesting
1: up front in the communication we we should point this out that there the commission sort of sets out that it, it hasn't been the intention of the European commission to criminalize uh, more uh, disinformation type content. So they've not set out to expand the scope of what's criminal. They are setting out to kind of shape the information environment in which we work. And again, very interesting. Sort of philosophically to, to what extent is it infringing on freedom of expression? If you, Allow people to say things. Still, you've not your law is not prohibiting them from saying it, but that you try and influence the means of distribution. In this case, internet companies to distribute it less. Um, to what extent is that uh, an infringement of free expression versus you know just criminalizing it and and seeking its removal altogether? So again, that's a uh, another area that becomes critical for us to understand if if um, you know somebody can say what they like uh but nobody can hear them because the algorithms have been changed in line with you know some of the arguments being advanced in the communication such that uh, uh that content never gets promoted to anybody else how should we feel about that from a free expression point of view um whereas i think it's very clear if it's you know if the law says you can't say this thing anymore or it said companies you must just remove all this stuff like that's very clearly a violation of freedom of expression changing the distribution model big question uh, and again something i think we need to debate more
0: and shifting the center of gravity when it comes to liability over to private companies who have an incentive to minimize their risk exposure um, i mean that's the other yeah. thing right if you if you know that there's a risk associated with this and it's by the way it's becoming a code of conduct under liability of the dsa then then it's likely that an overcorrection or an overlearning effect will will be will be a real problem. Um, but So, so let's, let's continue on this notion of mental models. Uh, the other thing that the, the report starts out by saying is that we have seen accompanying the pandemic an infodemic. And that seems to me to be a fundamentally unhelpful metaphor. Uh, this notion that you know, you're infected by a information just like you're infected by a virus. That's, that's not how that works, is it?
1: No, no, and, and again, uh, um, yeah, I, I've, I recoil at that phrase. It's become common. Uh, people throw it out there, but, but there is, a, I think, a sort of critical difference, which is th- this question of whether people are circulating bad information as a reflection of something they believe already. Or whether they are changing their behavior because the bad information is being circulated and and you know that's so different from a disease it's it's all like, you know um it, uh, if to take the disease version of things you know it's not that you've caught the virus from somebody else it's that you've self generated the virus and now you're sick, but you're <laughs> sick because you self generated nobody gave it to you that's where you are and yes you you may be sort of shedding <laughs> the virus out there. Um, but it may not be infecting anyone else the people who are shedding the virus are people already sick i've probably got as far as i can with that metaphor but they're, they're in, in viral terms they're sick because they have a belief uh, that that didn't come from a third party it came from themselves they, they there are you know people who who believe all sorts of things people who Want to believe uh, that it's only as bad as the flu because they really want to go to work and that's really important to them. Um, and 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 to say that's not that they've been bombarded with the misinformation. It's it's reflecting something that they believe it. Maybe they've had, you know, they've been fortunate, and friends and family have had an experience where th- they got the disease and didn't get sick. So they'll express that. Uh, arguably, they're now shedding misinformation because they're saying this thing is no worse than the flu. Um, but it didn't happen because they caught it, <laughs> that they, they were subject to a pandemic of inf- information. It, they, it happened because that was their experience and their beliefs that came out of that experience.
0: Yes. And I think, I mean, the, the other thing that's worthwhile thinking about here is that, you know, if your favorite word is political intent, I think mine is agency. And it, yes. it sort of very clearly seems to to violate the notion that there is any agency whatsoever because you're we don't blame people for getting the virus, uh, or at least we blame them to a very small degree for getting the virus. And, and just generally, I mean, you could make the objection. I remember uh, one of our, one of our uh, co-members of the group was sort of really reluctant to talk about, about infodemics and, and sort of made the point that if, if you hear the state talking about information as a question of hygiene, that's not a good yes. sign. That's not yeah. how to think about information or public debate, Right.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's unhealthy because, again, the, the suggestion then is you clean it up. I mean, if you um, I can take that analogy, you know, uh, uh, what do you do with a virus? You try and reduce it to zero, get rid of it, kill it. Literally you have, you know, uh, uh, solutions that will try and kill that virus. Again, back to where we, where we all started this conversation, if there is a debate going on between people, uh the idea that the state is going to come in and hygienically clean up that debate i think yeah creates all kinds of discomfort and we we see in some countries around the world that's sort of precisely the the approach that governments more oppressive governments have and i don't think it's helpful so that language of hygiene you know cleanliness i don't think is relevant when you're in an area where there is legitimate debate going on
0: i agree with that and i think that the 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 other thing that you could point out is that if if you're thinking about this as um, as some kind of of infodemic or some kind of disease then then uh, the question is what what is what is healthy debate and you end up being extraordinarily paternalistic at some point it's sort of it's you know what's the equivalent to sugar tax in misinformation you have to you eat a number of vegetables every day so where does that end where does the paternalistic model sort of end intervening but but the, the, the other underlying theme that's interesting in the communication is this question of of um, of curbing the tech platform's power. Um, but this brings us back to a paradox I think we've talked about before. It's, it's sort of almost, you hear the, the legislator saying, uh, oh, you are so powerful, so you have to do more. Neglecting that if you do even more, then that actually increases your power, certainly under liability. But the way this is being painted in the code, you, and you've already mentioned this, in the, in the code of practice here as it's being strengthened is, we want the companies to edit the internet. What does that do with the fundamental power dynamic here?
1: Yeah, it is a real challenge because, um, and I've been involved in a number of discussions where, where this gets really uncomfortable, that, and again, to be candid, the, the fact-checking community in Europe is receiving a lot of its funding from the big tech companies and, and they're damned if they do and damned if they don't. There's a kind of real discomfort to say, well, you know, we don't like this reliance on the big tech companies. We want a more diverse ecosystem. At the same time, uh, people will, will cite this um, polluter pays principle. You know, this the tech companies are causing the problem, so they should pay to clean it up, to use that language again. So we end up in this situation where uh, essentially it is the big companies now sort of, sort of paying effectively sort of third parties to to perform quite a, a lot of that editing function. We, we dig into what we mean by that, but essentially to, to look at content, make decisions about that content that then get fed back into the platforms and displayed in some way or affect the, the distribution of content in some way. So you, you've got this sort of flow from big companies to, to those sort of editing uh, um, functions, I guess one of the good, you know, the healthy things is that they are independent. So the fact-checking organizations would work with any company of any size. And so uh, it may be that big companies are paying, but those fact-checks are available to any of the competitors. The challenge being that many of those smaller competitors will not necessarily have the infrastructure to incorporate uh, the fact checks as technical infrastructure to kind of use them in the same way as the bigger companies. So very interesting sort of large, small company dynamics uh, to play out here. And to say, in a sense, a real dependence on the large tech companies for funding the infrastructure that um, allows that editing to take place
0: and And even as they're focusing on larger companies they're also we should give them credit. they also want to broaden the coalition that underpins the the code of practice, and they want more companies to sort of join and when they when they do that they they uh, expand the code to messaging services yes. That seems to me to be uh, an interesting move because at some point, at some point, sort of you, you can understand tech platforms. You can understand the analogy, is sort of, a, these are new services or kind of like. There's a lot of this editing stuff, but nobody edits my phone calls. So where, how do we think about that? How do we think yeah. about the messaging service inclusion? I mean, messaging is so
1: interesting. I mean, for, for firstly because. You know, if, if your um, hypothesis is that the reason people are consuming—I'll uh, use the technical term—crap is because <laughs> the, the, the crap is being promoted to them by the algorithms of the social media services. With private messaging, you've taken the, there is no algorithm. Private messaging is people communicating with each other, maybe in groups, but still, it's it's the only decisions about what gets stuck in a private message and sent to somebody. Are decisions taken by human beings. There's no there's no algorithm sticking stuff into your private messages. And so it's really interesting just as a test case to say, look, if if you're still consuming the same amount of crap on your private messaging services, then that sort of tends to suggest that the issue is with the humans, not the algorithms, because they're the ones who are pushing it out there. So and, and there are concerns that there is a lot of crap being consumed, and therefore attention's focused there. The communication interestingly says. Uh, you know, any measures in this space should be taken without interfering with encryption, which is very positive and actually very
0: positive. Yes.
1: Yeah. A very interesting contrast with the UK <laughs> drumbeat where the UK legislative drumbeat is all about, we've, you know, encryption hides a lot of bad stuff and there's a lot of either veiled or explicit threats to end-to-end encryption in the UK debate. Doesn't seem to be there in the, the this EU debate, but if that is the case and you're going to stick with uh, end-to-end encryption, then, by definition, with end-to-end encryption, every piece of content, from a computer's point of view, looks different. So, the same words on the page will be encrypted in you know differently. <laughs> by definition, for an end-to-end thing, so you can't compare them. And this is how you you know typically try and find bad content: is you have a computer that sits in the middle and goes, "I'm going to try and spot a pattern of this same content going through." With end-to-end encryption, the patterns don't necessarily exist. Like well, Certainly, you can't read the content. So you need to find what they call content agnostic measures. And those content agnostic measures will not uh, actually directly address the misinformation the same way. So they can do things like saying, well, if something gets forwarded a lot with a certain pattern of forwarding in a private messaging system, we might guess that that might be problematic content. We don't know. It could just be like really popular for perfectly legitimate reasons. But the, but the systems people are developing are doing that sort of guesswork and then crudely doing things like limiting the number of times you can forward a message. Or they can put a label on saying this message was forwarded based, again, on the hypothesis that forwarded messages may be more likely to be misinformation than not. Um, what they can't do, and I saw one of the suggestions in there, is to say you need to make sure that if something was labeled as false on social media, the label travels with it into a private messaging service. Well, you you can do that for the first message. (laughs) But if somebody then takes that same content and strips off the the label and then forwards it on, there's nothing you can do. That's like game over um, because it's your private message. No one else can read it. No one will even know whether or not you stripped off the the false label. Um, So I say, much more limited set of tools you can deploy in private messaging, if you're going to do it in this content agnostic way, whereas on the, your classic social media, it's, it's absolutely the opposite of that. It is, it is super content conscious. <laughs> we're going to look at the content, we're going to make a decision about the content, and we can treat it differently if it's been rated as false versus if it's been rated as acceptable.
0: And, and this is an underlying theme in the communication. It's really important to draw attention to it. And I think was one of the larger shifts that I saw as I read through the communication. And that is that we have moved from a uh, fairly narrow focus on content and what kinds of content is presented, uh, the algorithm, as you say, to a focus that shifts over into behavior. Now, I think that is a that is a shift that is Uh, Profound, because what it does, is it it sort of it gets the communication into to trouble quite quickly by saying things like we should deal with impermissible manipulative behavior, or even my favorite, inauthentic behavior, to safeguard the integrity of services. And at some point, at some point, you feel that you sort of you have when you had a focus on content and on algorithmic presentation of content, etc. You could understand the theory, but but here you you almost get the sense you sort of you you. You take a deep breath and you say, "What they really want is a better citizen."
1: Yeah, so actually, this is one of the bits of communication I really liked. It's <laughs> pretty and and the phrase "inauthentic behavior" I think come is actually a Facebook coinage. I think uh, that they they started this, and I I think the easiest way to think of this is this is a a more complex and sophisticated way of thinking about what people used to talk about as bots. So in the early generation of a lot of these measures, they, the the call to action was you've got to deal with bots. And of course, a bot in the simplest term is an account that is not being, well, again, different definitions, but not being operated by an individual on a kind of one-to-one basis. So it could be it could be computer-generated, or it could be a network of accounts operated by humans, but humans who are misrepresenting themselves for, for some nefarious purpose. So I think we moved on from bots because I don't think bot was a particularly useful term. There are a lot of good bots and bad bots. When I communicate with a lot of um, retailers, they will use a bot to deal with uh, my question and answer stuff. So I think they've, this section, actually, they're getting more sophisticated and and they are landing on something which I think is quite important. That is, you know, what are we really worried about? Where, where is intervention justified? I think it is justified when essentially fraud is being committed. <laughs> and in other areas, we accept that. So somebody like, going out there, misrepresenting themselves with, as I say, some kind of malicious purpose in mind and, and using uh, lots of different um, identities, the intention of which is to trick people, uh, creating, I mean, I've seen examples actually, Sweden was one of the examples of one of the political parties was not getting enough traction for their coverage, I remember. And they figured out if they created a bunch of groups on Facebook, and then they got all the people to, in those groups, like coordinate around liking different pieces of content, they could get those pieces of content distributed more widely. It would kind of push them up in the algorithm. And and they weren't, that wasn't, and so it looks like this stuff is really popular. It isn't. It's a whole bunch of people. Manipulating the algorithm effectively, I think Google has the same issue with search, and people will create fake websites with links to push stuff up search links. So I think link that,
0: farms, essentially, link, yeah. link farms.
1: Yeah. So if that's what we're talking about, I think that is a real thing, and and something that, for me, is very different. Um, again, as an example, I remember at one point uh, the European Parliament's page was being blasted with comments a Facebook page comments from people in Syria saying they supported President Assad and that Europe should you know European Parliament should stop condemning them and stay out of their civil war and uh, I've been talking to people at the European parliament and they're like you know this is this is bad this is um uh, uh so sort of inappropriate and when you looked at the accounts they were Syrians and again they may have been organized but they were the uh, ordinary Syrian civilians, as far as we could tell, the accounts look like they came from normal people in Syria who were, a, uh, in a coordinated way, expressing a political view in support of one side of a, a political and, and military dispute that's going on. So That, I don't... That's not inauthentic. <laughs> so that's sort of... So people organising in that way is not inauthentic. They're not hiding themselves. They're turning up on the European Parliament page. They're saying, here I am. I support President Assad. That, for me, is a world of difference from... Uh, People either using completely fake identities or doing things sort of behind the scenes in, in a way where um, the effect is to create a misleading impression. Uh, but you're
0: regulating behavior, and you're regulating and, the behavior of individuals. Yeah. And and I mean, it's it's a it's I think essentially you you also then have to have this ideal behavioral model where you say, here's how we want people to behave. Here's how we want them to engage in democracy. Here's how we want them to engage in debate. And and I think the the challenge is and i agree with you i mean one of the most interesting trends in content moderation lately has been the shift from individual pieces of content to behavioral patterns where exactly. you sort of you shift from the speech to the speaker and i think that's that's very clear that that's where we're going to end up but it it is also one of those things that that challenge i think the foundations of how we have thought of free expression and free speech for the last 200 300 years so it's it's not it's it, it, it sort of does raise within me, I I guess it's my sort of libertarian instinct. <laughs> it's, it's sort of, it does raise some questions about government regulation of authentic behavior. That doesn't sound good. I mean yeah. even though the intentions are, I think, impeccable, I, I do worry a, a little bit about where that where that leads us in terms of democratic debate. I, I think you're right. I mean and the government
1: piece is is tricky. But the this notion that um you know, the, on the internet, that there is a need to be able to um, sort the sheep from the goats, sort the sort the bad people out from the the regular users. I think has been there from the very beginning. And you know, email and spam is a classic example. Whilst uh, you know we could all get on to email systems, there are a bunch of people who's, who are who the email providers will spend time kicking off constantly based on their behaviour. And, that, and that's been like that for twenty odd years, and that's because that behaviour ruins email for everybody else. So I think there's a there is a tradition of identifying people by bad behaviour and kicking them off. It's now moving into these other areas again. To take my example, I think you know 500 Syrian supporters of President Assad, all acting in their own name as individuals, uh, uh, you know, they that's their right to freedom expression. I think it should be protected. There's no way they should be prevented from coming and commenting one person sitting there creating 500 fake accounts to to give a misleading sense of support, um, I think should have been treated differently. So the content would have manifested the same, 500 pro-Assad comments. But for me, it is material whether or not they come from 500 Syrians, if that's the rule and the expectation on that platform, again, to be very clear. Whereas, uh, you know, if they came from one person using automated means to post all of those comments, that is and the people who see them wouldn't necessarily know that or understand that i i think there is something different about that but you're absolutely right like teasing that out and trying to trying to say <laughs> or trying to define the set of rules that distinguish the two is really difficult and i was at facebook this was really hard uh, um often in the context of politics um you know trying to distinguish uh if you're arguably sort of um legitimate but aggressive political campaigning, which often works on this whole principle, let's get all your supporters together and get them to do something versus, you know, what should be regarded as illegitimate and prohibited political campaigning was really, really difficult thing to do.
0: Yes, and 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 the, the, the this communication sort of um, previews uh, further moves into this field that the commission is making, which which I think is connected to this, which is this notion of issue advertising or labeling political advertising, and they are saying that there will be a piece of legislation or regulation on this topic coming up, where the idea is you just have to label it so you know what kind of of advertising it is, but but that also moves deeper into to the democratic process. And at some point you move from the clean case that you sort of set out in the beginning where somebody is in in a fraudulent way trying to make you believe something they don't believe in for their own commercial gain, for example. It's sort of a Hmm. super clean example to an example where this is actually about uh, shaping opinion, but doing it in ways that are new and uh, you know, not necessarily established and sometimes feel iffy to us. And, and that line, the line between sort of where we move into political opinion shaping, that's a really difficult line to find. And, and it's always been, even pre-internet. There's this beautiful essay by Hannah Arndt, for example, that's about politi- politics and lying. Uh, in which she sets out that politics and lying have always had a very strong and long relationship with each other throughout the history of mankind, which is true. But if we end up in a situation where we say platforms should stop politicians from lying, oh, yeah. that that's clearly, I mean, that doesn't, I don't think that works.
1: Yeah, no. I, I've ri- written in defence of lying politicians <laughs> previously because I, I d- again, I think it, it, you're right. It's, it's in, the, it's not, it's not lovely, but it's kind of in the nature of politics. And and, and I probably should moderate the language. I've actually you know, in the British Parliament. You're not allowed to call someone a liar. You have to say that I think they may be mistaken or uh, uh, they may have exaggerated. So, uh, so a lot of it is not necessarily barefaced faced lying. Uh, With some notable exceptions, Um, quite a lot of it is sort of exaggeration, or you know, uh, it's not it's it's telling part of the truth rather than the whole truth. So, but that is that is the nature of political discourse. So, I'm I'm really skeptical that one of the things that the communication proposes, which I think could potentially be a very good thing, is uh, a kind of permanent working group structure. And I think one of the working groups needs to sit down and work through this issue of defining what a political ad is, both overt political ad and an issue-based political ad and and it is extraordinary again having worked in this field just how how sort of unclear that whole space is and you end up making some very odd decisions as a result again when i was at facebook we there was a time when we were introducing the sort of issue ad uh transparency and special rules for them and that and that started to include i don't know you know uh, a soap powder manufacturer who is Basically, selling soap in their ads, but they want to tell you that it's going to help stop climate change. Um, And so, well, they've mentioned climate change, therefore, you know, we've got to include it in the issue ads thing. And for me, that actually was less clear. (laughs) You know, they're clearly trying to sell soap, and the and the climate change thing is just a technique to do that. They're not, they're not, you know, really a political organization. But that that sort of stuff was really hard. There may be other people who go, well, no, you know, I don't believe in climate change. And therefore, they're a lefty soap manufacturer who's trying to advance a woke political agenda by whatever. The important thing is, I think that we sort of we do have a common set of definitions and we kind of go soap powder that mentions climate change or, you know, equal rights for Uh, uh, people of different sexualities. Is that, you know, Pride Month soap powder? Like, is that a political issue ad that should be regulated like other political issue ads or not? You know, where does all this start and end? Um, NGOs, another great example. A lot of NGOs or charities would get very offended if you put them into the system. But again, in many cases, they're much closer to advocating directly on politics. So um, I think that those kind of definitions... Uh, all having a transparent definition for the public and everybody being able to work to a common set of definitions is really important, particularly because then it allows you to compare, back to our KPIs, key performance indicators, it'll allow you to compare different platforms with each other if they're all using the same definitions. Um, and I hope this working group will, it needs a lot of debate. <laughs> I hope they'll do that. It needs like months of people's time arguing backwards and forwards for different people being in and out to get to a common position.
0: Is there any shorthand you can use there? I mean, would you uh, label a political ad as a political ad in a newspaper? Or is this where the internet is different? Or how would you think about, um, uh, you know, every time a journalist interviews a politician, that person will uh, naturally uh, have certain views. What if they take out an ad with news content in it? Is that then a political ad? I suppose it is, right? It's, and and, yeah. and, and they So just to be clear, most of the regulation, and this is true for the UK, and I think it's actually
1: true in many different countries, that the regulation tends to focus on a particular set of entities and in particular on their spending. So if you talk to the Electoral Commission in the UK, they'll say that they're a financial regulator first and foremost. So their job is to make sure that the money coming in and being spent is accounted for properly. Um, And so regulation tends to, say, narrowly focus on uh, a set of regulated entities who are formally taking part in politics. And then there may be a set of sort of charity regulation that will then apply to NGOs. And then when you've gone gone beyond that, it tends to be an unregulated space that, you know, my, my sort of climate change friendly soap powder, I don't think it, I'm not aware of anywhere where that would sort of be within the scope of, Traditional political regulation, but because of the internet, and actually precisely because of this, this sort of sense of uh, that that people are being manipulated in a devious way, it's caused us to ask these questions. Not, I think, because people were primarily worried about the soap powder, but they were worried. Again, back to the origins of this in the context of the 2016 thing of uh, Russian information operatives using something like Black Lives Matter or or uh, some other not necessarily overtly partisan thing to influence people. So because we started with that, they started saying, well, this sort of whole idea of of um subliminal <laughs> advertising is one we worry about. And then you you go on a path from there to say, well, is the soap powder climate change ad <laughs> equally a form of subliminal advertising because it's it's pushing in the direction of, you know, wanting to fight climate change, but without explicitly doing that. So some people it's almost, you know, it's almost worse than the overt political ad. But again, I think people listening to this will kind of go. I hope most of them would go. Well, yeah, that's not really what we're talking about. <laughs> we're not worried about soap out there.
0: That's right. So, so let's assume for a second that, the, the, that all of the good intentions that lie behind this proposal are embodied in its final version and in the way it's governed through, through for example, EDMO, other working groups, etc. Um, and, you know, we're looking back at this five years from now. Um, what big harms have been avoided?
1: Yeah, so so I think there are there are two harms that I think we can really deal with. So one is this foreign manipulation, which is really you know these are information operations. Again, they're not entirely new. There are they used to do it through radio shows and cassette tapes and things like this. These are you know paid representatives of a particular state whose job is to sow discord or fight for one particular contender in a political contest in a third country. And so I actually, I think we shouldn't lose sight of that. That should be, that. that is for me an entirely kind of legitimate <laughs> target. Um, you do not want, no country in the world wants...
0: But, but just one immigrants. question, I, yeah. I agree that's a legitimate target, but is it the legitimate target for companies though? I would argue that that's actually something that should be dealt with uh, between ministers of defense. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well I, I think I think for regulators uh you know and and in this case the Commission to be saying you know, if if your company is going to be popular in my country, if you've got a lot of users in my country, um I expect you to protect those users from this hostile foreign threat. And and hopefully if they do it well enough, it avoids bringing the ministry of defence in too much. But the ministry <laughs> of defence should sort of be part of it. But the idea is, you know, it's in the it's in the interest of peace and stability um, for countries to kind of defend themselves against these very deliberate, sort of hostile a- attempts to to disrupt and corrupt their information space. So I think
0: that's... Well, that and, to... and in the US, they're discussing whether or not this is Castle's Belly, if information operations are against the country could actually be reasons for it, for uh, limited and proportionate response. And and I, I really think it's a I really think it's a live question because what you're saying is that, yes, information operations from other countries will be tolerated because we expect large platforms to take care of them and so protect us. That's not just asking companies to, to moderate uh, uh, a public debate. It's sort of asking them to be a part of the national defense
1: exactly yeah as a sort of condition for operating in the country and again it gets us into a really interesting space potentially and we saw sort of early salvos over the tiktok thing when under the dying age of the trump administration there there's sort of early salvos of platforms will be forced to take one side or the other and actually we've seen some very hostile chinese reaction to you know entities western entities that uh, have appeared to be critical of china uh, so we may end up that that sort of uh, uh, insistence that a, a tech company takes sides may end up actually fracturing the internet a little bit more. So that's, but that's one piece I think that's sort of quite concrete and quite a strong focus. The second really big question though, uh, uh, where I think there's a lot more um, doubt about how effective it will be, but I think is going to happen, is this question of the internet is going to have editors. Uh, so it is moving. We talked about this in the context of the UK legislation. It, it feels to me like, well, at least the large platforms are, 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 you know, the pressure is all in one direction. It's that they've got to have some kind of editing structure in place. And there will be different views on on who should be doing that in different parts of the world. I think the EU in this communication is sort of very much steering towards this civil society primary editor model um, and companies having to if you, again you look through the communication there's a lot about companies having to provide data to civil society people uh, work with civil society people and so on there's a sort of common thread about that there's a lot of trust in fact checkers and again a lot of European fact checkers are uh, related to or housed by traditional media organizations so there's a lot of trust in 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 getting those folks involved um, that's the way I think you know it, it it's only will happen if this this all comes into place. Will that make for a better internet? I, and people have different views on that. I, I kind of tend... I'm, I'm not panicking about it. If it's done in the right way, I think there's quite a lot of advantage, uh, at least where you're not, as I say, from a freedom expression point of view, telling people they can't see things, or can't say things anymore. Um, so you're not criminalising a whole bunch of more speech. But you are trying to, um, you know, sort of shape the atmosphere in the main thoroughfares of the internet. I think we talked about this before. It's not that, you know, in the city, when you walk down the high street in the city, there's sort of certain expectations and norms of behavior. If we're talking about that, the information equivalent of that, that um, the editing is, is setting certain norms of behavior for these main thoroughfares, I, I am not panicking about that personally,
0: but others may. So the first harm i understand the notion of quenching information operations and I think it's a real thing when uh, we may sort of have, have at least slightly differing views on where that resides in a modern democracy if it's in sort of the private sector or if this is actually a national defense issue and how you know the private sector works with national defense is in itself a really interesting political question topic the the second harm seems less clear to me when you talk about uh, what the sort of second harm that we have avoided is because it seems and I get back to this it seems as if what we would have avoided then is a corrupt citizenry, or you know, uh, or less informed citizens, or or citizens that make decisions against their own uh, best knowledge. It's it's there's a there's a touch of Brecht there, Barthol Brecht. Right? Yeah. You know, we need to elect ourselves a better people.
1: Uh, yeah, I, d- I don't. So I think if you go down to the individual. Uh, there's that. So I think it's it's really important that we think of it at two different levels. One is for the individual. I think, as I say, uh, as long as the individual can go down the back streets and do their thing and say their thing, that's fine. Uh, um, so then I don't think you've kind of crossed the line t- to be uh, completely violating their freedom of expression. But I think there are, that you can sort of tidy up main thoroughfares. Uh, uh, and the harm you're preventing, I guess, in those cases are, is sort of you'll you you have a view that there will be accidental harm uh if people again let's use that analogy if i'm if i'm walking down the the high street in my local town there's sort of certain expectations that of safety of what i'll be exposed to that would be different from if i was in a private home or or another space I, i mean to that point again i i think um you know, that limiting what is done in private messaging, if we take that analogy, is really important, not trying to go too far there, um, because that is the much more the equivalent of the private home. But but something that says, look, we are trying to shift the norms of behaviour in those main thoroughfares, uh, I actually think there could be sort of broad public support for that.
0: Uh And I think also, I mean, in addition to the broad public support, I think there is another harm that you can avoid. And the other harm is that, uh, to a certain extent, the current climate, and not least the, the way the current climate is being described, or the way the current climate is being criticized, might actually stop a lot of people from participating in democratic uh, conversations online and so you know to your point about the city if you know that they these, these cities are not safe then then your regular family won't go out or people who who are who are not that confident that they can hold on to their purse if they're robbed won't go out so one of the harms you might avoid is uh, a decline in participation in democracy which would be I mean if you can get to a point where people feel that the democratic debate the democratic discourse online is meaningful to participate in that would be quite a big prize uh, if you can achieve yeah. it
1: and, and that's where I think the interests actually align with those of a lot of the platforms uh, who have struggled themselves and they they constantly being attacked for this that um, you know the the platforms sometimes appear to be ending up defending you know people Circulating crap and doing like terrible things, uh, uh, it, so you end up in that position. It's not where you want to be, but there's people on your platform who are sort of like actually polluting it for everyone else, and it feels like you're on the side of the polluters, not the you know mainstream use of your platform. Uh, when you can't get hold of you know get across things like hate speech and stuff like that, again, uh, that so I think there's a real alignment of interest potentially for the platforms. Um, And for the vast majority of people who use those platforms, you're absolutely right. They will feel more comfortable. They'll engage more if they're not expecting, you know, bad behavior, torrent of abuse every time that they, they engage.
0: I wonder how things would have evolved differently if instead of framing it in the negative and saying we should stop terrorist content, we should stop misinformation, we should stop disinformation. If we instead had had a debate about how we increase democratic participation in the conversation online, how we make people feel more comfortable with uh, exploring uh, how we live together, or what kinds of political proposals we have. It, the current debate is very much framed around risk, very little about opportunity, which is kind of a shift we've seen in the internet debate overall, as we've discussed several times before. And I, I sort of, it would just be interesting to sort of peek into an alternative universe where all of this was framed not around the risks, but actually around the enormous value we'd have if we could have a scaled-up democratic debate online. So
1: I think I think you might have just given us the material for episode twenty one. I think we should start from that point of um, when I turn on an internet connection. This is the incredible sort of value I get, which includes the value of oh wow, I can have a political debate with lots of other people. I can participate more, <laughs> um, and I think yes. we should. You're absolutely right. We should start from that principle because you, you, the the working assumption still in this is almost that you know social media in particular uh, has has coarsened or worsened political debate and what we've got to do is kind of l- limit its harmful effects when actually i fundamentally believe the reverse is true uh, again when you look at the general global perspective uh, not not speaking to people's individual experiences some very terrible experiences but at a general level uh the opportunities to involve in political debate now are greater than they ever have been and if you took social media away you know you would significantly worsen uh the the sphere the public uh, political sphere but maybe we need to have a conversation starting let's start from the reverse point and see what regulations we come up with
0: i love that i think that sounds like a great <laughs> idea well uh that's a great note to end on and um this is our 20th episode we're very happy to have had some of you listeners with us for 20 episodes and we promise you that we'll continue doing this Um, as long as you continue to listen. So share the podcast, tell people about it, make sure that uh, if you find something you agree with or disagree with, you let us know. And the podcast can be found on Richard's website, which is www.regulate.tech. Perfect. Thank you so much. And uh, hope you tune in next week.